You're listening to In His Name, the story of white evangelicals, the Republican Party, and how they came to support and endorse Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. Jerry Falwell was the son of a moonshiner in Lynchburg, Virginia, a city that wasn't urban, but it wasn't really rural either. His father died of cirrhosis of the liver when Jerry was just a teenager, and his mother was a very religious woman who found her place in a fundamentalist Baptist church. After going off to Bible college, Jerry Falwell came back home and started his ministry as a pastor of a new church in the late 1950s. While his church started out modestly, he saw a big boost thanks to his television and radio show. It's time now for the Old Time Gospel Hour with Jerry Falwell, pastor of the Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. The idea of a local pastor having his own television show was pretty novel. Billy Graham and Oral Roberts, two giants of evangelicalism, were pretty new to television. And Falwell was a much different speaker than those two. He welcomed guests with a mild, conversational tone. Good morning, and I welcome you to the morning service at the Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. I'm Jerry Falwell, pastor here, and it's a real joy. The growth of his church meant that his ministry was expanding to do more than just televise their Sunday morning services. He started what he called a youth department, where he developed classes and programming for school-aged children to better understand the Bible and its teachings. In just one year, Thomas Road Baptist Church grew from 35 to 864. By 1967, he had opened a Christian school, and by 1971, started what is now Liberty University. Today, Liberty University is the largest Christian university on the planet, with nearly 46,000 undergraduate students enrolled. Early in his career, Falwell stuck to preaching, and he encouraged others to do the same. In the 1960s, he argued, quote, We're not told to wage war against bootleggers, liquor stores, gamblers, murderers, prejudiced persons or institutions, or any other existing evil as such. The gospel does not clean up the outside but rather regenerates the inside. If you grew up in evangelical culture, the shortened version of this you probably heard was, we are not of this world, but we are to live in it. This rhetoric seems pretty innocent on its face, but as we'll see, Falwell's tone shifts over time. The campaign against abortion legalization began as a cause rooted in New Deal liberalism. Laws against abortion and contraception had been passed in the late 19th century, but by the 1930s, a few non-Catholic doctors began lobbying for the liberalization of abortion laws. Many Protestants and Jews advocated alongside the doctors, but it was Catholics who opposed them, calling upon the New Deal principles put into place by Democratic President Franklin D. Roosevelt. In fact, President Roosevelt offered high praise 
1931 letter from Pope Pius XI, where he spoke about the dangers of capitalism in the hands of just a few wealthy people and the dignity of humanity. Evangelicals simply weren't interested in the topic of abortion. In 1968, after decades of this talking point from Catholics, evangelicals started to speak publicly about the issue. Christianity Today, the flagship magazine for white evangelicals, co-sponsored a symposium with the Christian Medical Society to answer the question, how should evangelicals handle the topics of abortion and birth control? Here's Kristen Kobes Dume, a professor of history at Calvin University, a private Christian university in Michigan. And the answer, if it can be summed up from the the array of res- responses, is it's really complicated, right? It's, it's a difficult choice. It's not a great choice, but it's not always the worst choice. It's a very difficult moral decision that needs to be treated with care in community, by women, by medical professionals, by religious leaders. And wow, it's a really tough issue, right? In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, America's largest group of evangelicals, passed a resolution encouraging its members to work for legislation that allows the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, and other carefully scrutinized evidence that the pregnancy may be harmful to the mother. In 1973, the landmark Roe v. Wade Supreme Court case is ruled on, which legalizes abortion. Just one year later, the Southern Baptist Convention meets again reaffirming their position from before that abortion in specific instances should be permitted. 1976, they once again confirm their position. If we were to look at this through the lens of today, You could argue that the Southern Baptist Convention's platform in 1976 is the stance of today's pro-choice movement, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is Randall Balmer, a professor of religion at Dartmouth College. And the Southern Baptist Convention, let's remember, was not exactly a readout of liberalism in the the 1970s. Uh, No, it's absolutely right. Balmer points out that when the Roe v. Wade verdict was handed down, Several evangelical leaders, including W.A. Criswell, a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, applauded the ruling. Saying this is the right decision on the part of the Supreme Court. By 1978, Jerry Falwell had taken on the task of becoming a political activist, starting up the political action committee known as the Moral Majority. He began speaking across the country on three moral issues, pornography, homosexuality, and abortion. Remember, just two years prior, the Southern Baptist Convention had affirmed for a third time that they are in favor of abortion in specific cases. So how does Falwell and the moral majority get folks to care so much about abortion so quickly? Here's Daniel Williams, a professor of history at West Georgia University. By the late 1970s, 
there was a a larger historical context that I think allowed them to see abortion as the quintessential evil, the major symbol of a nation gone wrong. But perhaps the major reason that abortion really resonated with them was because of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was an evangelical theologian, pastor, and author who, at the behest of his teenage son, took on the issue of abortion. The product was a book and film series released in 1979 called Whatever Happened to the Human Race? Here's Balmer again. Francis Schaeffer begins touring the country with a series of films that feature himself along with a pediatric surgeon from Philadelphia, C. Everett Koop. These films, well, they haven't aged very well. But at the time, it was a bold statement. The footage starts with what appears to be a newborn baby on an operating table. The fully developed view of the sanctity of human life in the West did not come from nowhere, but came directly from the Judeo-Christian consensus, which was the framework in the West for centuries. Based on biblical teachings, people used to view human life as unique, something to be protected and loved because it was made in the image of God. The argument of this series was that any society that allows abortion will very quickly also come to embrace both infanticide and euthanasia. Jimmy Carter won election in 1976 over Gerald Ford, arguably becoming the nation's first evangelical president. Randall Balmer, in addition to being a professor of religion, also wrote a biography of the former president. Jimmy Carter sought to govern according to his religious principles and and scruples. That said, he was also a true Baptist, that is, a real Baptist, who also believed in the importance of the First Amendment, liberty of conscience, separation of church and state. So he did not try to impose his religious views on the nation. He was very careful about that. Late in his presidency, Carter made strides to reduce the incidence of abortions by simplifying adoption procedures, advocating for better sex education, and reducing the stigma of unwed pregnancies. The religious right was not impressed. If he was not willing to bring forward a constitutional amendment to put a halt on abortions, then they would not be supporting him. President Carter's opponent in the 1980 election would be former governor of California Ronald Reagan. Reagan was once known as a Hollywood Democrat, but became more conservative after his second marriage. He moved out of the limelight as an actor into full-time politics and became the governor of California in 1966. Within his first six months in office, Reagan signed the Therapeutic Abortion Act. The number of abortions in the state grew from 518 in his first year in office to an annual average of 100,000 in the remaining years of Reagan's two terms. More abortions than any U.S. state prior to the advent of Roe v. Wade. Reagan later went on to admit that abortion was not a subject he had given much thought to before he signed this act. 
Later in his career, he would acknowledge the consequences of signing that act, even calling it a mistake. While on the campaign trail for the Republican nomination in 1976, he repeatedly said his stance was he opposes abortion in all circumstances except when a mother's life is imperiled by her pregnancy. So let's take another look at the field for the president in the 1980 election with the help of Randall Balmer again. First of all, you have the larger issue of evangelical voters turning against one of their own, Jimmy Carter, in favor of somebody who had, uh, you know, at best a an episodic church-going relationship <laughs> uh, or church-going habits uh, coming into the 1980 election. In nearly every interview I did for this podcast, there was a phrase I heard over and over again. It's a litmus test. A litmus test. Litmus test. Litmus test. The litmus test. The litmus test. Litmus test. The litmus test. Litmus test. The litmus test. What does this term mean? A litmus test. The idea comes from the world of chemistry, but from a political science standpoint, it takes on a slightly different meaning. The idea is that there are specific policies and issues that a politician must endorse or oppose in order to be the right candidate. That was a decidedly different approach from previous administrations, as we saw with Billy Graham. Here's Daniel Williams again. He was always more attracted to character, perceived character of a politician. Now, by his own admission, he sometimes made disastrous judgments. And when he proclaimed Richard Nixon a moral leader, as he did on many occasions, he lived to regret that and admitted as much at the time. And in his later autobiography, he made no secret of the fact that he believed that he had been misled. So that style of politics of focusing primarily on perceived spiritual interests of the political leader, perceived character is a bit different than Falwell. One major advantage of the litmus test strategy was that Falwell and the moral majority had the power in the relationship. They no longer had to depend on the politicians to hold what they considered the right positions. They decided what the issues were and which ones to oppose and which ones to support. Which brings us back to the 1980 presidential election. And perhaps the most important moment of Ronald Reagan's campaign. Randall Balmer again. I think in many ways the turning point of the 1980 presidential election, at least in terms of the evangelical voters, was the huge rally down in Dallas, Texas in uh, August of 1980 at Reunion Arena. And on August 22nd, Ronald Reagan addressed that crowd. And uh, he, this is where he famously said, Now I know this is a nonpartisan gathering, and so I know that you can't endorse me but I only brought that up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing. Brought down the house, arguably sealed the evangelical vote. When I looked through his, uh, his uh, speech out at the Reagan Library in, in uh, California, and he mentions in that speech, he says, he talks about creationism. He says that if he were on a desert island, the one book he would want with him is the Bible. And in that stem-winding speech before estimates vary, 10 to 20,000 evangelicals in Dallas, Texas, 
Reunion Arena on August 22nd, 1980, he did not mention abortion even once. Reagan passed the litmus test for white evangelicals, for the moral majority, and for Jerry Falwell. And in November of 1980, he was elected president of the United States. President Carter struggled politically. There's no denying that. And it's hard to know definitively whether or not the defection of white evangelical voters were the nail in his political coffin. But what we do know is that Reagan won over white evangelical voters 62% to 30. And Jerry Falwell was fond of quoting a Harris poll that suggested Carter would have won the popular vote by a margin of 1% had it not been for the work of the moral majority. As President Reagan began his time in the Oval Office, he got off to a good start as far as white evangelicals were concerned. Remember the name C. Everett Koop? The guy who toured the country with Francis Schaeffer promoting their anti-abortion films? He becomes the Surgeon General. But for the most part, there wasn't much in the way of policy. Here's Angie Maxwell, professor of Southern Studies at the University of Arkansas. Mostly during Reagan's administration, it was all rhetoric. So there wasn't a lot that actually changed kind of boots on the ground. There was some smoke and mirrors about, you know, what they would fund, but we weren't ever using taxpayer money to you know, fund certain things domestically like abortions, right? But it, it was kind of paying homage. Randall Balmer again. By and large, he did not prosecute the agenda of the religious right as vigorously as they had reason to believe he would. Over the two terms and eight years in office, Reagan did not push for an overturning of Roe v. Wade, nor did he suggest a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion as the moral majority insisted that Jimmy Carter do during his time in office. In 1990, now into George H.W. Bush's presidency, a closed-door gathering of religious right leaders came to celebrate a decade of Republican leadership. But it wasn't all jubilee at the event. One leader in particular, as Balmer notes, was really disappointed. That Reagan really did not pursue their agenda as, as, uh, as he had promised. White evangelicals actually tried to run one of their own for president in the 1988 election, televangelist Pat Robertson. They thought they had garnered enough clout and power within the Republican Party. But that dream came crashing down quickly, as Robertson really stood no chance in the primary. Angie Maxwell points out that it was really at this moment when the litmus test of authenticity is kind of thrown out the window. Was George H.W. Bush one of them? Maybe? Probably not. But that didn't really matter anymore. According to Maxwell, this is why the litmus test was so important. A candidate may not be a white evangelical, but if someone will do the things on their list and say the things they want to say, their own personal history can easily be dismissed as God uses all kinds of folks.
The truth is, abortion is a really complicated issue. I'll remind you what Kristen Kobes Dumay, a professor of history from the Christian College Calvin University, said one more time, because I think it's so important to hear this, especially from a woman. It's, it's a difficult choice. It's not a great choice, but it's not always the worst choice. It's a very difficult moral decision that needs to be treated with care in community, by women, by medical professionals, by religious leaders. And wow, it's a really tough issue, right? Abortion is an extremely important issue for many, many Americans. There's no denying that. But to make abortion a litmus test issue leaves absolutely no room for kindness, patience, grace, or compassion. On January 24th, 2020, the pro-life organization March for Life held their 47th annual rally in downtown Washington, D.C. For 47 years, thousands had gathered to promote their anti-abortion stance, typically with speeches from Republican politicians and leaders of conservative think tanks. But the 2020 rally made history. It is my profound honor to be the first president in history to attend the March for Life. I had a chance to interview Gwenda Blair, who is a professor of journalism at Columbia University and a biographer of Donald Trump since the 1980s. How does a man with five children by three different wives who brags about grabbing women, claims he has nothing to be forgiven for, earn the trust and support of white evangelicals? Perhaps only God knows, really. That's next time. In his name. In his name. In his name. In his name is produced and edited by me, Matthew Moore, with help from Rick Stockdale. Our theme song is In Your Name by Tyson Matzenbacher, courtesy of Tooth and Nail Records.